This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. After several weeks on the road, we are back in our nice, cosy studio in London Bridge. Don't forget the Red Box Morning Newsletter is now exclusive to Times subscribers. We've got a sale on, so go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box and you can have me in your inbox just after 8 o'clock every morning if that's the sort of thing you want. Now, normally I ban the B word on the Red Box podcast but this week we've got three we've got burko with the times henry zeffman the budget with carl emerson from the institute for fiscal studies but first brexit with rachel sylvester the brexit talks are on a knife edge ahead of this week's crucial summit theresa may has no room to compromise one cabinet minister describes the tiny airstrip just a few meters wide onto which it would be possible to land a deal with the eu but the prime minister's co-pilots will not let her adjust course by even a few degrees in order to get the plane to the safe spot. Well, Rachel, this was interesting in that it was a new colourful metaphor that I hadn't heard before, <laughs> but it's basically summing up the same problem, that it feels like Theresa May's been more and more she's boxed She's in a holding in. pattern. She's in a holding pattern. To come in to land but at sailing. some point she's got to. She can't stay up there forever, otherwise she runs out of fuel or something. Exactly, and yeah. nobody gets their destination. But I think what I think is fascinating is that her real negotiation now is at least, if not more, in Westminster as in Brussels. There's a there's a sort of you can see a negotiating position and a deal that uh, the civil servants have hatched up. Uh, Ollie Robbins from this side and Michelle Barnier from the other side, which they could get to. But the the block on that is the politicians, the cabinet, the Tory Eurosceptics who aren't going to endorse any movement on the customs union, and of course the DUP who aren't going to allow her to make any concessions at all on the Northern Ireland border. Now, Henry, you're, um, you're one of the Times Brexit team. You produce the excellent Brexit briefing every Thursday. Um, Times subscribers can sign up to that in my bulletins, uh, where they can also find Redbox. To what extent do you think that everyone is still in their negotiating stance? So the DUP are sticking to their line, the Brexit is... The, but it, are they doing that just to hold Theresa May's feet to the fire? Or does she try and call their bluff? Or is it a genuinely intractable problem? Certainly in the case of the DUP, I think it would be a mistake to uh, believe that they are in a negotiating pattern from which they will eventually subside. Uh, The clue is in the name, the Democratic Unionist Party. They genuinely are horrified by the prospect of uh, anything which might cleave Northern Ireland in some sense from Great Britain. And they are right in their interpretation that they can push Theresa May pretty hard on that without 
inadvertently forcing a general election and having a, effectively a non-unionist prime minister in the form of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, when it comes to the Tory Eurosceptics, it's a little bit more complicated. This is where we get into the deep Kremlinology of the Kremlinology of the Kremlinology. Uh, Steve Baker, who's the sort of king of the Eurosceptics, former Brexit minister, says oh, well, there's up to 40 rebels. At some point, he says there's up to 80 rebels. Sometimes you get different numbers from different people. There's certainly a hardcore who will be voting against Theresa May's deal, if there is one, come what may. But then there is a different kind of wing of Tory Eurosceptics who, as you suggest, determined to hold Theresa May's feet to the fire. But the real question is, if she does get a deal and it comes before Parliament, will they then relent and say, well, it's not perfect, but probably time that we moved on and, and, and Rachel I think was absolutely right to say that the key negotiating theatre is now Westminster rather than Brussels but I think you could go even further within Westminster I think it's the cabinet table once Theresa May gets a deal if there is a deal to be got through her cabinet ministers I think that's most albeit far from all of the work I think once a deal comes before the House of Commons uh, and this is as much about Labour as it is about the Conservatives you might get to a position where MPs just say all right we don't like this deal we're not going to dip our hands in it, but you've got a deal, time to get out of the EU and have these arguments from outside. As you've brought up the cabinet, let's talk about the pizza plot. Andrea Leadsom's party in her office in Parliament, a deep pan pepperoni with Chris Grayling, sounds like about the worst thing I could imagine, but, you know, it's whatever how you, how you fill your Monday nights. How, how significant do we think this is? It sounded, at the weekend we were told it was all hard, hardcore Brexiteers, then the cast list grew to basically include anyone who wanted a slice of pizza from the Cabinet. Interesting thing is the more people were there, I think the less significant it is. Yeah. I don't know what Henry thinks. That Once you sort of water it down to that extent and you've got kind of Jeremy Hunt there, you sort of wonder how much of a plot is this really and is it just a sort of general catch-up? Uh, and it was almost people signalling their Eurosceptic credentials rather than any sinister plot to bring down the Prime Minister. Whereas a more hardcore, more focused... Um, sort of pizza summit might have been more dangerous for her. And do we think that over pizza they were discussing the finer points of the backstop to the backstop or is it just sort of just standing around <laughs> hoping, hoping it's all going to be alright in the end? <laughs> I suspect closer to the to the latter than the former. I, I agree with Rachel, the bigger the cast list grew, the less threatening uh, it was to Theresa May. But even still, I mean, the, 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 the sort of so-called pizza plot grew out of the idea that there were three Brexiteer ministers in the cabinet who were particularly exercised by the direction of travel, Penny Mordaunt, Esther McVeigh and Andrew Leadsom herself. But even if it had just been confined to those three and they'd decided over their Hawaiian slice that they were going to quit, I think Theresa May could have warned that. I mean, it almost gets to the point where the most devastating consequence of those people quitting the cabinet would have been adding three more votes to the tally against her deal more than anything else. I think Theresa May's got to be much more worried medium term by not that Jeremy Hunt and uh, Dominic Raab and the other new members of the pizza plot, not whether they might quit because they won't, probably, but whether they have the clout within Cabinet to just bog her down and stop her going to Brussels and striking bargains and to divert her off course. And there is also a fundamental kind of clash between the two sides over this issue of the time limit so you can't I don't really see how you can have a proper backstop with a time limit because it isn't then a backstop is it it's like an insurance policy <laughs> until your house burns down and then we don't have the insurance policy so there isn't really a, a kind of unless you have a sort of fudgy form of words um that that kind of implies permanence while implying 
temporariness in a sort of Schrodinger's <laughs> cat backstop. It's hard to see how those two sides come together. So, Carl, let's bring you in here. What's happening in the real world while Westminster is obsessing about temporary permanence and of backstops and all that? What's, what impact is all this having on the economy? Well, economists seem to have got somewhat a perhaps undeserved bad name with what happened after the referendum. It's certainly true the economy didn't enter into an immediate freefall. Um, but since then, we've seen consumer spending slow, partly because of rising inflation, because of the devaluation of the pound that followed the referendum. We're also seeing much, much slower business investment growth. And one thing we know that drives business investment growth, or one thing that can stop it, is uncertainty. So all of the uncertainty about what kind of Brexit deal are we going to get um, really isn't going to help when companies are thinking about whether to make new investments in the UK. Um, so the uncertainty doesn't help. And of course, ultimately, what business and what the economy wants, what's best for the economy, is to have as free a trade as possible with our nearest trading partner. So kind of the worst case scenario is lots and lots of uncertainty that then ends up with a with no deal, which means WTO terms. And there's some new um, IFS uh, research you've got out this week ahead of the budget, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it basically says, although the time scale for the economic impact was wrong, the people who warned that Brexit was going to lead to a massive uh, dent in the economy, what you're saying is that we basically have ended up there, but it's just taken a bit longer? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the economy now is closer to the kind of forecasts that were made saying what would happen if we voted Brexit than what it is to the forecasts that were made saying what would happen if we did remain. It is certainly true that six months after the referendum, it looked like nothing had happened and we were closer to the kind of pro-remain forecasts. Um, it's since then things have slowed. We're now not far off that. It looks like the economy is about 2% smaller than what it would have been and at this that, point. what's that in pounds? About £40 billion pounds a year. That's quite a lot of pounds. In terms of uncertainty, which is obviously what matters more than anything for for business, it is ridiculous that the government still doesn't have an agreed position. I mean, how absurd is that? Yes. We can add that to the list of all the other things. Which <laughs> is a bit and, the, mad. The, and the lack of agreed position uh, forces businesses to interpret uh, and act in the worst case scenario, right? So, so the uncertainty almost almost produces certainty on the in the minds of businesses, where they they and they've been telling government this for months, uh, and journalists. Uh, we now have to just assume the worst case scenario. At which point, you can say that no deal is just a contingency. But if businesses are acting as if no deal is the reality, then you know it's not pointless to strike a deal. But but the the the, the gains of a deal as opposed to no deal become more and more marginal. Colin, to what extent is the the damage, if you like, the, the, to the economy pent up? Is there a, is some Brexiteers hope that when a deal is struck, suddenly businesses go, "Oh, it's fine. We finally know what's going to go on," and all the investment decisions they've been putting off will suddenly spring into life, and there'll be a sort of dramatic uptick, just which actually is just the result of pent up. Somebody somebody's been standing on the hosepipe, and it all. I think if, if the uncertainty clears and business can see that they, a, a deal that um, they like the look of becomes highly probable or indeed has been signed, I think it is quite possible that there is a load of pent-up investment that will suddenly take place. That doesn't mean the economy will recover all of the lost ground since 2016, but it does mean that we might recover some of it. Essentially, what business is doing are pricing in the possibility of a hard Brexit under very unfavourable terms, a lot of uncertainty and a possibility that we end up with a kind of trade deal that perhaps wouldn't be quite as damaging to the economy 
So if we move more towards the latter, I think there is a chance for, 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 for some investment to take place that's been held back in recent months. So just before we move on, as we sit here now, what, what's our sense that we think is going to happen? She gets a deal and it gets through Parliament? I'll regret committing this to, to audio, but yes, that's my central hypothesis. Carl? I think I'll leave that to the political journalist. <laughs> Very wise. I don't know, but I suspect she may get a deal and then you get to parliamentary deadlock. Well, that's something to look forward to. Let's move on, though, and let's discuss another B, the budget. It's happening in two weeks, and this is Carl Emerson. Clearly, the Brexit uncertainty is making things harder for Chancellor Philip Hammond. Um, he doesn't know what kind of Brexit deal we'll get, doesn't know what it will do to the economy. There will be some good news that he'll get to announce on the deficit. It looks a bit smaller than he thought back in the spring, but mostly it's going to be about very, very difficult choices. Theresa May wants to end austerity. Well, to do that and still eliminate the deficit, which he's also committed to doing, suggests either substantial tax rises, and perhaps that's hard to imagine, or much, much stronger growth than what's being forecast. So you know, trying to square these promises that have been made looks very, very difficult. It's so unlike Theresa May to make a series of contradictory promises which you can't deliver all at once. Let's start with the how far off are we from achieving balancing the books, clearing the deficit? So in the last financial year, the government ran a deficit of about £40 billion. Over the next five years, the Chancellor was planning to reduce that through a continued squeeze on the day-to-day -day spending of government departments on public services and welfare cuts continuing to work their way through the system. But even in five years' time, he was expecting to run a deficit of about £21 billion. Now, we think that might be more like 15, so it's come down a bit, but it's some way off zero, which is where he wants it to be. And it is predicated on delivering that squeeze on day-to-day -day spending. And so what was your reaction when you saw Theresa May promise the end of austerity during the Tory party conference? It just seems pretty clear that if you've got a deficit and it's not explained by temporary weakness in the economy, so it's a structural deficit, if you want to get rid of it, you can either put up taxes or you can cut spending. And the government's approach was essentially, as of spring, was to continue to squeeze spending. And you know, we, were, we were some way off getting it back down to zero. So it just seems you know, implausible to, to square those two. If there was a sudden dramatic change in mood in the Tory party and they said, yeah, actually, yeah, we'll have a load of tax rises, what does plugging that gap mean in terms of inc like an income tax rise? Or sort of how do you quantify it? So... A minimal definition of ending austerity might be to say, well, we'll, we'll meet our commitments for the NHS for aid to defence and everything else in the public sector, all other public services, won't get cut over the next five years. So let's do that. Then you need to find £19 billion. Supposing you put a penny on all rates of income tax and a penny on NICS and 1% on the main rate of VAT, do all of those, you're getting close to the money you need. Wow. That's quite a lot. That's quite a lot, and I'm pretty sure they won't do it in that way, even if they were going to do a tax rise of that magnitude. Rachel, it doesn't feel like that's the sort of thing that would get through the House of Commons at the moment. Or through the Chancellor, in fact. Yeah. Um, I mean, so how, you, how do you define the end of austerity? Because actually, for most voters, I'm not sure they're thinking in terms of not any more cuts. They're thinking, my school hasn't got enough money. They're thinking there isn't enough money for the old people's homes and for the hospitals, and there are waiting lists going up. That's, that's about putting more money into public services, let alone universal credit, where they're, you know, Ian Duncan Smith's talking of a three billion pound black hole of money that was taken out in existing cuts. So if you're just talking about sort of maintaining the status quo, I'm not sure that most voters are going to feel that that's the end of austerity. And there is a sort of political point to this, that the Tories are now, or Downing Street is, is 
has judged that people are turning against the Conservative Party on the grounds of lack of investment in public services and that sort of back to the nasty party and all those toxic things that David Cameron tried so hard to dis, you know, dispel. The austerity is such a vague term. Any, yeah. any, any impact on your life which has got anything to do with public services you can put down to austerity. So it could be, you know, well, if austerity is ended, my bus is going to come back or my train ticket is going to come yeah. down or whatever the, the thing is that you've up until the that cro- point. The thing you're cross about. Yeah. And, and the problem is it's people's personal experiences. So it is their, you know, the teachers at their school saying we can't afford to buy new laptops or it's the things you you experience at the cutting edge that that uh, affects your view of the politicians i mean of course if that's the problem then actually the chancellor's spring statement plans which implied continued cuts um and once you pencil in trying to find you know the 20 billion that the prime minister's promised the nhs over the next five years within that envelope even more cuts for those other areas it makes those look unplausible continuing kind of the pace of cuts that those services have seen since 2010 for another four or five years perhaps that isn't deliverable either and the benefits cut which keeps going for another two years doesn't it the benefits freeze so there's one more year of the freeze to the rates of most working age benefits due to come next april there's also um the limp the generosity of the benefit system to families with children in particular large families that continues to apply to more and more families as we see more births over time and there's universal credit itself which actually is a really big giveaway to a whole load of people and a really big takeaway from another set of people. And of course, I guess the problem for the government is that people, the people who are getting less than they would have got are the ones that will notice and will perhaps write to their MPs about it. Henry, Universal Credit has sort of exploded again as an issue. We, it felt like maybe David Gork and before him, Damien Green had tried to take some of the political heat out of it. Uh, heat the estimate payers managed to cook back in, has managed to put back into it. it it now feels like one of those things almost from nowhere is now like one of the central tests of philip hammond's budget in a couple of weeks yeah, ab- absolutely and it's a reminder uh yet again that there is actually this quite fundamental tension between theresa may and philip hammond on economic policy i mean don't forget that uh, in the heady days of mid-2017 when Theresa May was travelling around the country to all sorts of places that Tory leaders had never been and never will go again. Uh, <laughs> she was planning to, to sack him, probably replace him with, with Amber Rudd, whatever happened to her. To the extent that there is a kind of unifying thread to Theresa May's politics, she is more economically interventionist than your average Tory MP, and she believes in a bigger state than your average Tory MP. Philip Hammond is neither of those things. It's kind of a microcosm of the problem that that the government has trying to get its budget through the Commons in a hung parliament, which is that, strip it of the economic context and strip it of the political context... I think Rachel's absolutely right that Downing Street have identified public services as the way to win back support. But take away all of that. There are enough Tory MPs who are just ideologically opposed to tax rises and would be would find a sort of tax raising budget as anathema to kill a particularly sort of bold and interventionist budget. Quite apart from the fact that I don't think Philip Hammond is sort of particularly equipped to deliver that anyway. So as with Brexit, it is a, an, a muddle. And if you asked me if I were in Downing Street, how would I advise the Prime Minister to get through it? I would have absolutely no idea. So do we think then that as a result, the budget is going to be small? Because the less you put in it, the less that can go wrong, the less chance of a rebellion just before the Brexit vote comes back. I think that's probably quite likely. And perhaps it ties in with the fact that the budget's happening so early. I think 
also the economics might point to wait and see. I mean, there's so much uncertainty. While the Chancellor did say in the spring that he'd tell us exactly how much he would have to spend on public services over the next few years in this budget, perhaps he's better off waiting until next year when we'll have more information on the Brexit deal and how the economy's dealing with that. And just finally, Carl, because I think sometimes there's, there's a sort of assumption in politics that this is what is happening, but other people might ask, why do we need to eliminate the deficit? Why, why the... Is, it, is that just a political choice rather than an economic one? We have choices. We could choose to borrow more money going forwards. Um, that would be nice in the sense it allows us to enjoy lower taxes or higher spending. The cost of that is that we would have a higher level of debt for longer, and debt is a lot higher than what it was before the crisis. And the risk you're taking, it may be a small risk, but the risk you're taking is that the next time a financial crisis or a deep recession comes along and the government wants to intervene with allowing the deficit to increase and a lot more spending, perhaps it would find it difficult to do that. So this may be a very, very low probability event, but it could be very, very bad. So there's a kind of insurance argument that says you might want to get the debt down in the good times. Now, of course, maybe these aren't the good times. Maybe we want to wait a few years before doing it. But then one starts to ask, well, when are the good times? We'll be interested to see what happens. And we'll have a special uh, post-budget podcast as normal after the budget in a couple of weeks. In a moment, we'll be talking about the third B, John Burko. We'll be back after this short break. 
uh, an investigation by a retired High Court judge, uh, Dame Laura Cox, who concludes that there is this extraordinary culture of harassment and bullying from the top in Parliament towards House of Commons staff. And when she then goes further and says that the Speaker is not equipped to solve that culture and, and affect the change needed to stop it being the culture, then it is kind of extraordinary for MPs to do anything other than insist that John Burko has to go. And Major, we've already seen a bit of that. So Kevin Bowen wrote an article in The Times, uh, unusually former outgoing chairman of the Standards Committee. He's saying he should go. Maria Miller, the chairman of the Women's Equalities Committee, should say go. Does this feel different, that this might be a tipping point? I just think it's it goes so far beyond John Burko. Um, so leave aside, I think Henry's made some really good points, but this is really about how all MPs behave. I mean, the report is completely shocking. It is, it is incredible. I've having read it all yesterday. Yeah, it amazing. and, it, you know, the, the scale and the extent of this stuff, you know, it talks about sort of groups of male MPs sitting in corridors leering at female members of staff going past, and you sort of a, a widespread culture of sort of vulgarity, a, a bullying, um, sexual harassment, basically. I don't think it's about one man to be honest I think it's and I, I find it kind of stunning really that um, so many MPs feel that sort of behavior is is acceptable and I, I think it's I do think the culture is changing and will change almost by it's a bit like the MP the expenses scandal once these things are out in the open people suddenly think oh my goodness I'm being judged in a different way but actually John Burke became common speaker off the back of the expenses scandal because Michael Martin was seen to have not handled it well and had tried to sort of smooth it all over and it would all go away but it's a slightly different in the sense that he isn't their boss he isn't the MP's boss is he he's he's one MP who's um had allegations made against him. But, the, uh, but I do think there's a much... The, the real problem is the wider cultural issue. Um, but I think if, if, if the, the thing that came with. across in the report again and again is people feel, if I make a complaint, this is not going to be taken seriously. Mm. And if the complaints made by against the Speaker haven't been taken seriously, in part because he's the Speaker and he's seen as a block to all of that and the culture, you know, comes from the top down. Mm. The one point that I'd push back on, you're, you're, you're quite right that he is... You know, first amongst equals in in some sense. You know, he is just another MP, and uh, but uh, more than any previous speaker, in fact, John Berger has positioned himself as the voice of the Commons, and in fact, in some some cases, and this has led to clashes with the Lords, the voice of Parliament as a whole. And he uh, has toured schools, and in fact, countries, speaking on behalf of the House of Commons and saying, "This is what we do." And so, once you set yourself up as uh, the public face of the House of Commons. I do think you have to be willing to take the fall for the culture of the House of Commons. But but you are quite right that the really stunning thing about this report, which is forensic and calm but utterly devastating, is just how broad and widespread uh, the problem seems to, to be and to have been. I mean, uh, Matt, I know you were doing the same. Um, I was reading the report uh, on, on, on one of my two screens and then copying, co started copying and pasting uh, sort of particularly extraordinary bits onto a document on the other screen. And after sort of half an hour, I thought, well, this is no good because I'm actually just copying and pasting <laughs> the entire 150 odd page saw, report. There's another every bit, paragraph, yeah. it was just truly unbelievable but almost literally unbelievable. Actually, for anyone who's been around uh, the House of Commons or, or any sort of uh, old institution for that matter, uh, it's all too believable that this kind of, that's the way it's always always has been and if you can't fit in, go. That culture festers. 
I wonder whether it's there's a different attitude among younger MPs and newer MPs. So, I mean, I've been writing about politics for 20 years now, and certainly 20 years ago, there were far fewer women, you know, far fewer women writing about it, far fewer women MPs. Um, and I do think there has been a change in that time. You know, there's definitely more respect, you know, more... Um, I don't think people would be quite so brazen. I mean, what's shocking about this report is how much there still is. Um, but you would hope that the younger MPs and the newer MPs would bring in a new culture, just partly generationally. It, what was interesting, there was a section where she talks about how most MPs are not guilty of this behaviour. However, it's more than just a few. And there is a, a group of MPs who see this happening and don't do anything about mm. it. And a victim of, whether it's bullying or sexual harassment, goes to an MP who saw it happening and say, will you back me up? And they say, oh, don't rock the boat. Mm. He's a good egg, really. And, it, and so even the ones who are not personally responsible for it, that culture of of not wanting to upset the apple cart. Culminating in a cabinet minister who then has to resign exactly over right. yeah. harassing a journalist. But that's almost also what's going on uh, with the allegations against John Burko. Uh, Labour MPs uh, and, and we're recording this just before an urgent question and who knows what might develop. But generally, certainly in the wake of the allegations when they were made earlier this year, Labour MPs support John Burko because uh, they think he's a good egg. Specifically, uh, they think that he's going to help them in procedural terms try and stop Theresa May's Brexit deal. They're right. Uh, that he has a particular interpretation of how the House of Commons should vote on Brexit and leave aside the merits of that. It is really striking, and Emily Thornberry did it quite publicly this morning, it is really, on Tuesday morning, it is really striking that Labour MPs are openly willing to subordinate allegations of bullying to procedural questions surrounding Brexit, when the truth is that they have sufficient clout in the House of Commons and Remainers have sufficient clout in the House of Commons that if there is an election to succeed John Burko as Speaker, they could easily install a Speaker who, you know, stands on a commitment to hold as many amendable votes on Brexit motions as possible. So, you know, that is kind of symptomatic of the same thing. Well, as Henry was saying, we're recording just as the uh, urgent question is getting underway in Parliament, so I imagine this is a subject we will return to. It'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. For now, though, that's all we've got time for. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device, and you can become a Times subscriber. Get Red Box in your inbox at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. But for now, from Henry Zeffman, Carl Emerson, Rachel Sylvester, and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.